the aftermath of GameStop, who will be left holding the bag? Peter Hutchin of Counsel at Norris McLaughlin joins us. I'm Lawrence Clitty, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for being here. Today, we're going to be following up on the possible legal consequences for that whole GameStop thing from a couple of weeks ago. And obviously, no doubt you heard about it in the news. But before we get to that, we need to thank our sponsor for their support, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Let's say hello to our guest, Peter Hutchin. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Well, thank you for being here with us today. You know, my, my producer, Molly McDonough, and I were trying to put this show together for a little bit. You know, obviously there was a lot going on with this GameStop. It kind of became a uh, populist sensation on the news, sort of the David versus Goliath. And there was just a lot of back and forth about the consequences of it. But I'm glad that we got to wait for some of the dust to settle. There's been some, you know, class action and SEC suit uh, or possibly SEC interaction here with uh, some of the players involved in this game. And so we can't across some articles that you wrote, uh, Molly did, uh, that you wrote uh, on your website there, the Norris McLaughlin website, which I thought really walked through the whole issue of these artificial investment bubbles. It's sort of that irrational human behavior that drives these bubbles to bursting. And people, you know, the last person left holding the bag really pays the consequences for these investments going south after that last buyer and it implodes and kind of, uh, you know, everything goes down in value. But uh, this was a little different, you know, this is a little different story. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, but I want to do the obligatory explanation of a short sell. So Peter, I'm going to ask for your critique of this when I'm done. So obviously everybody's doing this on these podcasts. And one of the things I think they get too much into the weeds on some of the financial terms. I'm going to give my my try at this and see if I do any better. So just a real quick explanation, because I remember how hard this was for some of our listeners out there when they took the bar exam, the, the short sell. Short sell, you're trying to make money off a stock that's going down in value. Now, how do you do that? Well, you do that because you're selling it today. You don't own the stock today, but you're selling it with the notion that you're going to buy it back later for less. So let's say you sell the stock today for $10. You know it's going to go down to $5. You buy it at $5. Your profit is $5. That's how you make money on a short sell. Now, this is how you lose money on a short sell. So let's say you, you sold it today. Don't own it, but you sold it today. For $10, you have to go buy it back and it goes up in value. Now it's $15. So you have to buy it back. You already sold it for $10. You lost $5. So hopefully that made sense. What do you think? Peter, did I do okay not overcomplicating that? The only thing I would disagree with is your characterization of the initial short sale. It's not that you know it's going to go down. It's a bet. It's a lawful bet that it's going to go down. And short selling is actually a very uh, important part of price and pricing in the market. It's true for commodities as well. And it's a well-recognized and historic activity. And it is a bet by the short seller that the price will decline. In other words, the market price is higher than the true value of the security. 
And that's what happened here. And so there were several stocks on the table here. There was GameStop, uh, which is a video game store that sells uh, video games, uh, physical copies of video games, like on discs and everything. And this is you know, obviously kind of an outdated model because a lot of people are downloading this onto their consoles via the internet. There's some other stocks like BlackBerry, uh, AMC Movie Theaters, all stocks that were kind of just... You know, with the pandemic year, not not uh, the highest value, uh, looked like they were going to be declining options. And so, Peter, I think where I want to start here with this is, you know, tell us briefly what happened with this GameStop saga. So obviously you have, you know, uh, a big short that's going on here with some of these declining assets, right? These declining investments, these companies that are maybe an outdated model. But then on the other side, you've got this band of Redditors that are buying on the other side, really messing this up for them. So can you just give us the flyby on what happened here with the GameStop disaster? GameStop was a relatively low price stock. It's 52-week interday low was $2.57, and that was in April of 2020. By the beginning of 2021, it was a $17 stock. All of a sudden, on the 28th of, of January of, of 2021, it's $483. Now, the hedge funds had taken, a number of them had taken positions in GameStop and other similar companies, AMC Entertainment, Nokia, Koss. They were essentially betting that the price would decline. One of those hedge funds ended up having an enormous exposure and lost an awful lot of money. All right, well, let's talk about some of the players, kind of build this out a little bit. And what I want to do here, Peter, is establish who the players were and some of their roles in this. And then on the flip side, I want to come back and talk about what possible liability they might have in this whole scenario. So why don't we start with, and you wrote this great article, I've wrote a couple of great articles about it, which I'm going to put in the show notes. But why don't we start with the Redditors? And I think the ringleader, as you as you were writing about, is, is a gentleman by the name of Keith Gill. I guess he also goes by Rory. Kitty on uh, on Reddit, and so tell us about his role in this whole equation and his, uh, I guess, his very band of redditors. In the January of thirty thirty one Weekend Wall Street Journal, he was profiled on the front page, and he identified himself as the fellow who started the the surge in prices on GameStop, and uh, that he was a marketing executive with Mass Mutual Insurance Company until recently. In the following week, it became clear that he was, in fact, a registered representative functioning as a, for the mass mutual broker dealership and was, had passed all the necessary financial exams and certainly knew a lot about the market. And it, it says that for something on the order of uh, six months, he had engaged in regular video broadcasts and tweets related to GameStop shares and that they were undervalued and that people should go out and buy them. So no, he's a little different than some of the other Redditors because he's actually got some institutional knowledge there. And so this put him in pretty unique situation where he kind of knows how these different financial instruments work and so opened up a large opportunity for him. So let's talk about the other side of that equation. Let's talk about Melvin Capital and some of these other hedge funds. Now, they're they're doing a pretty big short here, a pretty aggressive short. Now, this massive grouping of buyers is really throwing off their strategy. So tell us about Melvin Capital. Capital and what happened to them? Melvin Capital, in a period, as I said before, the price 
goes from around $17 a share at the beginning of January 2021 to $483 by January 28. Melvin Capital's position was a, a short position. It was so large that it was essentially bankrupt because it, it didn't have enough money to buy the share of GameStop that it had to would have had to purchase to cover the short. It survived only because of capital infusions from two other hedge funds, Citadel Capital and Point72. According to the financial press, it lost over 53% of its asset value, which it was a total of more than $3 billion. All right, I want to ask you about Citadel's involvement later, because as I understand it, Citadel owns Melvin, but they also own Robinhood. Now, Robinhood was the mechanism for these trades. And so it wasn't just Robinhood, but that's sort of the uh, the poster child of these, these sort of like low cost or free to trade platform applications, very popular with this younger sect of investors, because you don't have to run up all of those transaction fees and they can, they're free to buy and sell on their own recognizance. And so Robinhood is this this app that empowers that. Now, so what happened with Robinhood? So as time went on, the short sell versus this massive group of buyers begins to heat up. Now it starts driving the stock price upward, which is unsustainable for the hedge funds uh, maintaining the short position. And eventually Robinhood has to intervene. So tell us about that. Let me start out with one thing. Robinhood gets its money because it doesn't charge for the trades. It gets its money for payment for order flow from other entities who engage in clearing trades, one of whom is Citadel. Citadel had invested in Robinhood, so it's a part owner. Robinhood is required by the way the stock market works to post sufficient capital so that if a trade does not close, that the trade is covered. The clearinghouse is not at risk for loss. Accordingly, Robinhood got a call on the 20, I believe on the 27th, saying, you have to give us over another billion dollars worth of liquid assets or you're not trading tomorrow. Now, this became a liquidity issue. And so I think it was either the founder or the CEO came out and said they were not having liquidity issues. That sort of opened up that scepter. Did they get this pressure from one of uh, one of the owners of Robinhood, one of these uh, investors, because Citadel's other investment, Melvin Capital, was suffering because of what was going on uh, with these buys. And so with that, what was the result there? So that a liquidity issue, how did they solve it? Well, they did get a billion dollars that night and they got another $2.3 billion the following day. Now, part of that was they had to stop the trading, right? So they restricted they, yes. the trading. So tell us about the trade restrictions. They said, you you may not buy 13 different stocks. And eventually they reduced over the next several days, they reduced that from 13 to eight. They eliminated a total bar to only a limited amount that you could buy. And again, it was because of the financial risk being generated by the the price surge coupled with the volume and that the Robinhood did not have a sufficient amount of capital resources in hand to support the clearinghouse exposures. And that's what happened. Now, the class action suits claim that this was all done to help the hedge funds and particularly Citadel, its part owner. Frankly, 
I can tell you the regulatory requirements about the that the clearinghouses imposed are absolutely true, and I have no reason to disbelieve that Robinhood had to raise that money or basically face being pushed out of business. All right, well, let, let's transition over to these losses. The powers that be, they're going to have to make some determination now that billions of dollars were lost. So if the powers that be determine that it's not just a bad trade by these hedge funds trying to short a stock, but it's something uh, more malicious, uh, something that uh, goes against the law, then there could possibly be some penalties, some liabilities. And if the SEC gets involved, there might be some criminal penalties. So let's talk about those. And I want to kind of go down, if it's okay, Peter, go down party by party to see what they might potentially be liable for. If I could just point out, you're right about the losses, but the price of GameStop today, and remember the 28th of January is not all that long ago, the price of GameStop today is $52 a share. So if you bought it at $483, you're sitting with something that's worth $52 now unless you got out. So it's not just the hedge funds and Robinhood that had losses here. Well, that, fair enough. It wasn't just the big institutions that got hurt. It was also these uh, these private investors, these uh, kind of smaller fish in the big pond, so to speak, right? Yes. Let's go down the list of the parties that we talked about before and talk about some of the liability that they might face as all of this, uh, as the dust clears, so to speak. And so let's start with Keith Gill. Now, of course, he was the broker dealer, works for Mass Mutual, And so he, he uh, had to resign from his job. That was penalty number one, but he also faces some regulatory uh, problems and also possibly some SEC violations. So can you tell us about that? I think he's got three places. The SEC, yes. And even more significant is FINRA, the Financial Institution Regulatory Authority, which is a self-regulatory organization that oversees all broker-dealers. And FINRA has indicated that they are very seriously looking at him. And the third one is the state securities regulator in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Every state has a state securities regulator because that they came into existence, frankly, before the passage of the federal securities laws in the 1930s. The Massachusetts securities regulator happens to be particularly tough. They're run by uh, Secretary Gallin, who is pretty notorious in the securities business. And they have already subpoenaed Mr. Gill because they want to talk to him about what he thought he was doing. Well, how about some of these other Redditors? And I think this is going to be much more difficult. As I was reading from your piece, you know, these SEC violations may apply to them in antitrust, correct? And so to the degree there's collusion, uh, and to the degree that collusion gets to a certain market size, they could be running afoul of the SEC violation. So can you walk us through some of that? It's very unclear how much that can be proven. But I thought it is something that is worth looking at. And it is my understanding that it's not just the SEC. The SEC, as you, I'm sure you know, only has civil jurisdiction and enforcement authority. It is my understanding that the Department of Justice is also reviewing this, and that would be potential criminal liability. There are also all kinds of possibilities here. To the extent there was any conscious collusion to do the, what happened there may be legal responsibility for it. I do not know. I only, I only know what I read in the papers, like Will Rogers. <laughs> 
No, and I think I think that one's going to be one of the hardest ones to prove. I think there'll be so much expense involved trying to figure out who was colluding versus who was just reading uh, a Reddit board on a topic they were interested in and decide it was a good idea to run long on a buy investment. And if there is liability, it would probably be on the person or persons who organized the collusion. And that would be Mr. Gill, perhaps. All right, well, let, let's talk about a little different type of liability here. So, so Robinhood, you know, as I understand, they did some trade freezes, but I also heard that they actually sold off the property of investors that refused to sell. So they'd already made a ton of money. They can close their position. They've made a ton of money. And so they just went ahead and sold off the property anyway. Now, that property does not belong to them. And so, you know, there's probably uh, some lawsuit right there, you know, loss in property perhaps or loss of an investment. So tell us about some of that with Robinhood. What, what potential liability do they have? You're correct. Although a lot will hang on two things. First will be what are the terms of the account agreement that the investor has to sign up when they start with Robinhood. That account agreement may allow for not just suspension of trading, but actual closing out of accounts in order to comply with other regulatory requirements. And the second one is facts and circumstances. Can Robinhood show that this was a reaction to? the trading constraints being imposed by the clearinghouses. And assuming they can show those things, then uh, Robinhood will have had the wonderful uh, opportunity to spend money on lawyers, but perhaps not be found liable for anything. What about the notion of them being inadequately, I guess, collateralized with capital to offset this unexpected push on a stock on, uh, from the buy position? Is there anything that might, might play out there? Yes, they already had been fined by the SEC a substantial amount of money earlier in the year for other shortfalls in their operations. This is certainly one. It's it's very hard to say that I was doing great when you almost collapse. And that's where they, I think, face much more likelihood of liability. All right, now I want to close this part of the interview out with Melvin and Citadel. And this is one that kind of got a red flag going for me. And so you got Citadel that has ownership interest in Melvin Capital, which is one of the hedge funds that got punished severely in these uh, series of transactions. But Citadel also owns Robinhood. And so there's a little bit of a conflict there, this ownership position. And so if there's a degree of we're like, listen, we've got to cool you down over there, Robinhood, because you're killing one of our investments and they applied undue pressure, is there liability for Citadel under an equation like that? Yes. But I think that that is likely to be very difficult to show, assuming that the clearinghouses did, in fact, mandate additional capital to support the continued trading. As long as Robinhood can show that, any claim against Citadel for undue influence is going to have a lot of trouble because it'll be hard to show that, that, that the influence, even if it existed, was undue since Robinhood was trying to save its operations. All right, last question for you, Peter. This is going to tie up the show in a nice little bow. So related to the couple of pieces that you put out, you know, you were talking about how every time there's sort of an era of one of these irrational investor reactions, it creates a bubble and something caves in, there always seems to be sort of the, uh, 
I guess, sort of the Monday morning quarterback. And there t- tends to be, and this has been going on throughout a long period of time, centuries, there tends to be an additional regulation built in to try to prevent that from happening the next time. So in spirit of that, in spirit of your piece and in spirit of what happened here with Robinhood and GameStop, you know, do you envision new regulations or maybe some informal changes to how these, uh, how these platforms go about trading? I think that there's no question about that. But let me, before we leave it, I want to mention it. Mass Mutual has, sub, has very substantial exposure because they did not, in my judgment, adequately supervise their employee who was a registered rep and monitor what he was doing, which they're obligated to do as part of being a broker dealer. They will also get to speak to Mr. Gowden in Massachusetts and to FINRA. Now, I wouldn't be surprised to, to see rather substantial fine and possibly specific regulatory oversight. For instance, having to put in place a monitor to make sure that they know what they're doing because it, it looks pretty clear that they didn't. And now I'll, I'll try to answer. Yes, there are some things I think that could be done. There's no question there could be greater transparency. For instance, the hedge funds file 13Fs four times a year. They could be required to do that. That's a SEC form, and that's how you find out who's holding what. But there could be far greater transparency as to, as to what the short positions are that are out there and who holds them. There can be significant restrictions on how much of a company's stock can be shorted. In the uh, GameStop situation, again, reputedly, the number of shares shorted totaled something like 140% of the total number of shares GameStop had. That strikes one as being just an invitation to excess, and in this case, gambling. There should be an ability to put uh, tighter margin restrictions in place much faster than were done here. And one of the things that people talk about all the time is that used to be a week to close on securities transactions. And then it was a wonderful thing that it was eventually brought down to T plus three. And now it, it's been T plus two, I think, for about 30 years. Someone told me that there have been improvements in technology. And a lot of people are saying, why the Dickens don't we have real-time transactional closings? So you don't have that lag during which odd things can happen. That's something that requires regulatory action by the SEC, but it doesn't require congressional legislation. I think those are things that could be done usefully. Also, they could have more restrictions on on when you can use options and various other things. I think those things could be done without a tremendous amount of adverse impact on the capital markets and without really affecting the benefit that short sellers bring to the pricing mechanism. And that's one of the things, it's important that that anyone who's paying attention to me here understand that short sellers are not bad and evil people. They were attacked as though they were, but what they are, are, are price finders. And they're very important to the legitimacy of the pricing in our marketplace. 
No, I agree with that. You know, I think that, uh, but I also want to kind of be fair to the other side, although I, I think their motives were pretty publicly uh, written. You know, I think one of the uh, the rebukes they had was that some of these these short sellers do get pretty aggressive. And in so doing, they do drive down the stock price for a company, you know, and that can impact a company when they want to raise capital. But, uh, you know, Peter, I really, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I want to thank you for being here with us. It's a pleasure. I uh, must tell you that uh, the capital markets have fascinated me for uh, over 51 years. I've enjoyed the opportunity to be a player of sorts, advising people in, in transactions and, and such. An understanding of them, of the capital markets, is a critical part of being a good uh, business lawyer. Absolutely. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Word of mouth is always the best. Also, one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And lastly, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LT and audio crew for all their hard work. Much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.